Hello and welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. Devin joins me today to discuss all kinds of stuff, but first, before we get started on this long list of things, Devin, what have you been up to, man? Oh, I've been editing way too much, and I've been peeking my microphone and doing other terrible things. <laughs> and nothing particularly fun uh, other than uh, playing around with some audio gear. So, Now, what audio gear do you have in the studio today? Uh, <laughs> I've been, I went back to using... Um, my road mic on a few shoots because the uh the nt2 a uh, road video mic i should be specific the nt uh ntg2 that i've been using uh has some kind of problem with it i'm still trying to work it out but it's not giving me a clean signal i don't know if a diaphragm is loose or what but uh so i went back to using the video mic and remembered how great it is for the price but also how maybe not so great it is uh in some fidelity but um so it just got me interested in shotgun mics again. So I'm playing around with shotgun mics and uh, having fun. Now, one thing I always run into with the Rode video mic, and this is probably what you're referring to, is it's a good mic as long as your subject is close. I'm talking like within three feet. But you get further than that, and you start to get a lot of room noise and everything. And they kind mm -hmm. of advertise the mic as like perfect for filming, but most people put it right on top of their camera in the cold shoe and then it's going to be too far away from your subject, and you're going to end up kind of in the dead man zone where you don't quite get what you need. Now, well, that's, that is what what's interesting because I I think mine is actually that um, uh, the mic got dropped somewhere along the way, and I think that I've got a physical problem with the mic. But uh, that's something that I noticed too is that uh, you know coming from uh, I forget the name of it or the model number because they're all crazy model numbers. But there was an old Sony I had that was maybe only about five inches big that um. Uh, I used to put on top of my DVX-200B. That was great for, like, ENG gathering. You could be quite a ways away and still pick up a decent signal. And when you're doing documentary shooting or something like that, that's exactly the kind of mic you want. Where these Rode mics, I was kind of expecting that kind of pickup, and I wasn't getting that kind of pickup. It works great once it's up close, which if you are filming and you've got a boom operator and everything else, that's great. But, you know, it's just one of those things I was kind of surprised because just overall when I think shotgun, I think of that kind of performance. Now, one of my favorite mics, and I know this is kind of off subject from the regular show, but this guy right here is one of my favorites. This is the Audio-Technica 4073. comes in an A flavor and a B flavor. The only difference between those two is that uh, the A doesn't beat compliance for lead inside of the solder, and the B does. Uh, otherwise, they're identical. <laughs> but the output of this thing is extremely strong. It's got a pickup range where your subject can be 7 to 10 feet away from the microphone, and it still just really captures everything. It's very crisp, not a lot of low end, so if you're looking for that, maybe not the way to go. But well-priced. You can get these for like $6.99 new and used as low as $400, $300. They're a really popular uh, ENG microphone. Mm -hmm. So everybody and their brother has one of these in their collection. And because of that, they're kind of be they're commodity priced. Uh, mine, mm -hmm. you can see there's some, well, for video viewers, you can see that there's some uh, marks and scrapes. It's taken a few falls. I actually have three of these. I love these mics so wow. much, and I use them all the time. Uh, even I like them better than my uh, Sennheiser SK, what is it, SK1? I think it's SK1. Uh, I don't remember what the numbers. Mm -hmm. But uh, also, they're, that's a $1,000 mic, and this is a $600 mic. And for most things, this is far superior. Only failure is in very flat-walled rooms because it's so good at picking up sound that the reverberation, of course, gets picked up. Mm -hmm. Whereas my Sennheiser SK has a much more like 
circular Better rejection. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it doesn't reach as far. So like it's right. good for that sort of thing. I also have uh, CS2, which is, um, I, th I think it's Sankey, Sankey, I don't know. You know, they make the blue mic and the, mm -hmm. and those have yeah. more of an omni pattern. So they're really good if you're just in a room and you're getting two people and there's no carpet and it's wood floors. Uh, definitely great for that. But enough about microphones. This is what I've been working on and it sucks and I'm not very excited to continue doing it, but uh, I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, I've got green screen going right now and you can see I'm sharing my screen. There's a bunch of green screen shots so I have to work on. Um, so and Dev and I were talking about this before the show. Uh, he was asking about how I got this uh, key here. And basically what I did on this is uh, there's an outside green screen in Omaha, Nebraska. And uh, we rented a, and he guessed the car already. What was this again? I think it was <laughs> a, Mustang. a Mustang. I don't know what year. Yeah, I just so, know it's a Mustang. <laughs> I think it's like a 09 or 10. I don't, it might be older. We rented it. It was only like 50 bucks a day. But uh, they have an outside green screen. And if you shoot, shoot there during the day, um, you basically don't have to provide very much in the way of lighting. A few white reflectors and that's about it. And you can get a really good key. Very even because there's tons of light. And you can see from some of these shots that uh it really just turned out pretty well so the green um, is super even yeah really nicely lit easy to and, handle and you, you have enough light too that you can bump your iso down and you don't have to deal with your video camera introducing noise into the green as well yeah now this was still shot on a dslr so i do have the issue to deal with of of edges you know um a lot of the two two yeah, a lot of that edging because of uh, the way a DSLR shoots will give you some really weird keys. Um, if you mm -hmm. use key light inside of After Effects, it can really help with that because it has that edge sensing mode that fills it in with like kind of a grayish color. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm no, by no means an expert in green screen. I'm just good enough to get away with it most of the time. Well, and a, good, but, a good tip too, if you're especially if you're over in After Effects um, and using key light, though I think Adobe now has all those options in there. Uh, a lot of people don't know that like a lot of the uh, areas of After Effects, you can actually change things by a quarter of a pixel or half a pixel. So sometimes if I'm dealing with 422, uh, which we won't go into what 422 means for color and chromascape because that's an hour-long conversation on its own. <laughs> uh, but since you're kind of missing half of the color information when you do 422, uh, that's where the green will bleed into areas that shouldn't be green. And so I'll usually run like a 0.5 choke uh, pixel choke depending on the situation the camera and everything else but it's just a lot of people don't know you can type decimals sometimes into those fields and it'll actually then choke by half a pixel rather than choking by a whole pixel and little things like that and then it re-rasterizes it out because obviously you can't you know just work with half a pixel so it has to rasterize but it, it does there's some interesting ways that you can play with little numbers here and there uh, that actually do some pretty good stuff so there's tons of green screen tutorials online uh, to go check out but that's just something that i like to do in mine and shooting green screen outside makes so much sense i don't know why i haven't thought of it earlier <laughs> yeah it um actually there's a couple of really good um uh, short films that were filmed in nebraska that they use that technique and i was like what are you guys doing and they're like oh we uh painted this wall chroma key green and we keep a tarp over it uh, during the winter and then in the summer you can just come out and shoot in front of it and i was like 
what? <laughs> like, oh yeah. And he's like, you got a, you got something big you need to film? Like, a, I don't know, a car or something like that. Here you go. You don't have to worry about going to a studio or something. And, and I mean, I don't know what they do to keep it fresh other than tarping it. Um, it was pretty nice when we got there, but they've got to have like some kind of coating on it or something so that it doesn't, you know, fade or go sideways yeah. after time. I'm not really 100% sure what the heck they do there, but, uh, Definitely interesting way to go for green screening, a technique I'm not very familiar with uh, shooting outside. So only done that once, but it's cool. <laughs> I want to do it again. Um, all right. All right. On, to the news. On to the news, Devin. Step on the news. Step on the news. Time for the news. I don't know why I'm super excited or enthusiastic today. Like I have nothing but miserable work ahead of me, and I'm still just like chipper for whatever reason. First thing on the list here is actually the Sony A7R Mark II. The DxO Mark scores have come out for this, ranking the Sony A7R Mark II as one of the highest, actually the highest scored camera that they've ever done. It's extremely impressive, a score of 98, which is uh, the closest competitor is the Nikon D810, which is sitting at uh, 97. Uh, Canon's down in the 87 range there for the 5DS. That's extremely impressive for a 42 megapixel sensor camera. And did you see the low light on that, Devin? It looks like it's good. You know, they were getting good scores all the way down to like 3,400 ISO. Yeah, it, it, it looks like to me, especially compared to the other cameras, that uh, even this one, which we thought was mostly going to be focused around resolution, uh, it still upkeeps that low light sensitivity well past the point of your average uh, mirrorless DSLR. Um, I don't know exactly how it stacks up against something like a Mark III, uh, but the scores look so good that I think that it's uh, it's definitely one of those that you could consider, hey, I, this, this is kind of like a low light camera. It's not going to blow... It, you know, it stands very sh far away from the S, but still, uh, it's one of those cameras that I go, wow, this maybe has more uses than I originally thought and maybe, you know, constitutes taking a second look at it. Uh, while I don't know where I'd need 42 megapixels in my photos, um, it's definitely fascinating, especially with that um, 4K video option and everything else in HD up to 60 frames. Yeah, and interestingly, uh, I think this is the very first uh, DSLR size camera that's capable of using that uh, backlit, uh, back illuminated uh, sensor technology where they basically move the traces to the back of the sensor and the photo sites forward a mm -hmm. little bit. Uh, that's probably part of this, but man, that many pixels and that small photo sites and they're still getting good low light performance at a 42 megapixel sensor. I'm... I don't know. I'm torn. Uh, part of me <laughs> says like that's super sexy, but the other part of me says, man, three grand. And you know, the AF system uh, traditionally for um, Sony hasn't been very good. D do you think they're going to get a lot of people moving from Canon, especially with the AF system, you know, the focusing with Canon glass that they've been sort of advertising over the last couple of months? I think that's definitely what they're going for. Can they actually convince some people to do it? I think yes. If they've, um, if they're trying to go after the hybrid market of video shooters that also shoot photos for event coverage or wedding or what have you, um, I think it could it could definitely pull a few of them over from Canon because Canon with their DSLR market don't seem to really be recognizing much in the way of video. As we've discussed before, they don't want to cannibalize their better video cameras uh, by letting the DSLRs kind of start taking on 4K and doing other fancy stuff like that. So... Um, not that uh, 4K is going to make your videos look better, but in general, it's becoming a part of the industry now where we have to you know, look at 4K as a viable option for our production workflow. So it's one of those where 
I think it's going to work, maybe not for a large percentage. It's not like it's going to make Canon go away or it's going to make Canon scared that they're like going to lose some of their uh, market share. But I think that it's enough that um, people are going to start reaching out. And I think Sony is, that's absolutely what they're going for because they're direct, to me, when they show, hey, look how fast Canon glass focuses, that basically almost looks like a direct attack on Canon being like, hey, Take, take your lenses that you love from Canon, put it on our camera, which does all this stuff that Canon's DSLR doesn't, and uh, enjoy your shooting experience. So uh, I'm super excited for it. I, I definitely want to try one out. The one thing I've heard is that one or two people have said it feels kind of sluggish, especially compared to the S, which is interesting. I don't know if that has to do with all the megapixels. Maybe the processor isn't beefy enough, or maybe just the firmware is not optimized. But I've kind of heard that it seems like a lot of the way that the system works seems a bit sluggish. So I'd like to get in my hands and try out. I don't even know why I would need 42 megapixels. But still, it's uh, it's definitely a, a camera to think about if you're looking at um, getting something that's sensitive and high resolution. Well, you mentioned the uh, A7S, and with Sony's sort of uh, cycle of cameras, we should be seeing an A7S Mark III or Mark II coming out mm -hmm. fairly soon, probably by the end of the year or first of next year. And if you want to talk about amazing low light performance, I mean, <laughs> I still use my A7S for uh, outdoor night shooting on a regular basis, and it's amazing. If they can provide that and allow 4K shooting internally, uh, you know, I would still, it would keep me in the Sony camp. I'm not going to buy Sony glass. Honestly, guys, uh, not really impressed with a lot of Sony glass offering. Uh, maybe it's just because I'm so heavily invested in Canon glass and uh, I'm not feel, willing to spend the money. But. I feel like you'd have trouble selling it too if you ever needed to turn it around. Yeah. It's, Sony's one of those things that the glass doesn't seem to move around a whole lot. And I think that's because there's only one camera that it sticks to. Nikon has the advantage of... Um, you know, being the same glass they've had since forever and the fact that their Nikon glass can go on Canon. And Canon just has this wide range of cameras but now with their C-series and everything else that it works on, including you can get reds with a Canon mount. So it's one of those things that um, I feel like Sony just, the Sony connection, the E-mount e doesn't have enough people using it to make the glass worth that much uh which you know like you said though they also haven't made anything that really wows people in terms of glass so maybe that's the first step well looking on craigslist in my area if you go start hunting for like the 55 millimeter f18 uh you can find it for four or five hundred dollars less than it is new which is kind of <laughs> it takes a big hit whereas you know even my and actually, we'll talk about that lens in a little bit. The uh, 35 millimeter f1.4, which is now being replaced by the Mark II, that one will still fetch a good grand and some change, even though the lens is like five or six years old and it's being replaced by a more modern lens. Even the uh, if you go clear back to the 17 to 35 millimeter f2.8, which was the original original wide angle for EF, you can get that mm -hmm. still. It'll set you back about six or seven hundred dollars, which is pretty substantial and that lens is like 10 maybe 15 years old now uh you can go out and buy that for cheaper than the 16 to 35 but it's still fairly spendy and really holds its value <clears throat> canon glass is like uh buy gold guys buy gold <laughs> canon glass is like buy gold now uh, moving on down the line where we're talking about lenses let's go ahead and bring that subject up what do you think about the canon 35 millimeter f14 mark ii i'm looking right now at the mtf chart here in the show notes 
And it looks like they're getting rid of a lot of the color fringing that you had with that, uh, or chromatic abrasion, whatever you want to call it. And it's going to have a hefty price tag, eighteen hundred bucks. You think it's worth it? Uh, not particularly. Um, I mean, most of these updates with Canon Glass have been like nothing significant. Uh, I guess side by side, I'd probably be able to tell the difference. And I'm sure weather seal is probably a huge thing for some people. Uh, it's one of those though, that for me and my workflow, I'm just glad this is happening so that the other one's cheaper and I can go grab that. <laughs> that's, that's the only reason why this would be news to me. Um, though I, I, I don't know. It's one of those that like, yeah, on the charts and everything else, you can see these, these big differences. But then when I see the images side by side testing them, it's one of those where I guess I'm not a good enough photographer. I really have trouble really seeing the difference without pixel peeping. So for me, it's not necessarily worth it, uh, especially too, because I don't have a bunch of cannons lying around. So well, I'm looking right now too at the MTF chart for the uh, Sigma 35 millimeter F14. And mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's not better than the new 35 millimeter f1.4, but it's it's better than the original, and it's right. kind of that in between. And that lens is about seven hundred and fifty dollars, uh, so yeah. half, uh, less than half the price of the new version. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's kind of a hard sell because Sigma has been doing really good with their art series lenses, offering up kind of a bargain compared to mm -hmm. newer Canon glass. Uh, maybe that would be the way to go, you know, sell off your uh, Canon 35 millimeter F1.4 and go for the Sigma 35 millimeter F1.4. Though there are complaints about the Boca. What do you think? Is that going to be enough to keep people away from the <laughs> Sigma? Uh, no, I think that there's so much of a price difference of the people uh, who may be on the fence between one or the other. Um, the Boca is not going to be the reason why they spend more money. It's going to be because the Canon name is the reason why they spend more money in my opinion. So uh, I, I don't I don't really particularly see something like the Boca really uh, putting anyone off just because there's such a big price gap. Yeah. The the interesting thing is a uh, Canon shooters in general, they kind of have this special pride for having a red stripe on yes. their lens. Uh, even some of the generic uh, lens manufacturers, Rokinon makes a few. They put a red stripe on there just so from a distance it could possibly right. be confused with L glass so that the user looks a little bit fancier. Um, I don't know. I, but that, not... to me, that's only, that only is impressive to other photographers. Anyone who's not that's a photographer true. videographer doesn't know what that means. So it's one of those where I don't see that impressing a client. If you're doing video work and you throw a map box on there, that impresses a client. They don't know what it is, but they can tell it looks impressive. Yeah, map boxing. But uh, the red stripe, I feel like, is only to show off to other photographers, which if that's why you're, you're pulling your camera out and heading to shoots, you know, maybe uh, another job would be more, uh, yeah, feel, feel better for you than <laughs> just going out there. Hey, check out what I got. Hey, I got the new Mark, Mark whatever, Mark 4, whatever. Uh, it, it's one of those that it, Canon does make good gear and it's quality and it lasts and the Canon warranty and repairs and everything else. It's great to have all of this company behind this lens. Uh, but it's one of those that we're reaching into it, it kind of like what cars are and everything else where the cheaper prices is driving more people to buy that unit. And when it goes bad, people buy a new one. People aren't really doing repairs and keeping stuff for years and years and years and years like they used to. There's no such thing as TV repair anymore. People buy a new TV. So uh, it, I feel like uh, camera lenses are slowly going that way. And just because Canon has such a market share, they can kind of keep playing this old game 
of, you know, you buy this lens once and you keep it for your lifetime, you know, or you sell it around if you need the money, but because um, <laughs> it'll still be worth something 15 years down the road. So uh, it, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out because, yeah, the performance of the art lenses have been really good, especially considering the price. That's actually one thing I worry about with uh, Micro Four Thirds lenses, and I'm sitting here surrounded by a bunch of Micro Four Thirds class. Uh, I don't know if M43 doesn't stick around for a long term period, then a lot of this stuff I have will end up being paperweights and you know worth very mm -hmm. little. And we saw that happen back in 2004, 2005, uh, when Nikon went away from uh, manufacturing a lot of their manual focus glass. Uh, that stuff, the price dropped down to where you could buy those lenses for like 100 bucks. And it was four, maybe five years before the popularity of putting those onto Canon cameras got big enough that it actually brought the price back up to something reasonable. With M43, if they don't keep manufacturing new cameras, you know, eventually these would be nothing of value to me. Whereas at least uh, full frame glass, you know, that's going to, sure. well, well, I assume it's going to be around, but I suppose maybe Canon will disappear tomorrow and I won't need for uh, full frame <laughs> glass anymore. Well, here's the thing is that Canon is so used that even if Canon were to disappear, uh, unless something crazy happens with the format, let's just say in a theoretical world where Canon just disappears one day, foreclosure, bankruptcy, whatever, um, other people are going to pick up and start using the format anyways, just because everything is in that format. So, uh, and possibly more people will use it because they don't have to license it. Uh, Micro Four Thirds, though, I think uh, it's not tied with one company. I mean, even though it's mostly Panasonic, there are several companies that have tied on to use this and make, create a standard for it. And when you got multiple companies doing like that, to me, that's a standard. When one company says, this is the way we're going to do it and you all have to play along, uh, to me, that's not a standard. That's just... That's just a monopoly. So uh, Micro Four Thirds, I don't ever see going away because Blackmagic uses it along with Olympus and several other uh, companies use it because it's an open format. It's cheap to produce for. And with uh, sensors, get the tinier sensors getting better, uh, there's less reason to necessarily have such a big sensor. Uh, so not to have a sensor argument right now, but it, so I just generally see Micro Four Thirds is going to stick around, and if it sticks around, the glass will continue to be profitable, as opposed to the Sony format. If Sony were to disappear, which it wouldn't because Sony owns everything, but if they were to disappear, the format would be gone the next day because I just don't imagine a lot of people so in love with E-mount that they're going to start wanting to create E-mount products after, you know, the company uh, has disappeared, theoretically speaking. So, Well, and Sony, they really kind of inherited their uh, mount system to begin with because they brought it over from Minolta back in the day. Uh, they didn't really create it per se. <laughs> per se, yeah. Then you have the whole issue of the E-mount and the A-mount, which is also a weird, confusing derision in Sony's market. Uh, I don't know. Uh, the other one that's really wacky is you, then you've got Samsung off to the side. And I didn't even mm -hmm. realize how many lenses Samsung had created for their uh, APS-C and their smaller form, fa uh, form factor 500, X500, N500 series camera. Both of those guys, they've got like 25 or 30 different lenses in the lineup now for those. And they only fit Samsung cameras. I mean... What's the resale value on those? I, I can't right? imagine. It's, it's, it's kind of nuts because we mix and match so much, but I guess it must make money. There must be either that very wealthy family that's out there who's like, oh, I went to Best Buy and he showed me this, uh, you know, um, the Samsung camera and I really liked it. And then he recommended I buy these other lenses for a thousand a piece. So I went ahead and bought them. So, you know, some people will just have an entire kit 
uh, because they like that kind of a thing. We as pros need, you know, this and that for this and that. So we mix and match all the time. But I know too, as crazy as it sounds, I know people who will spend extra money to have a lens that matches their camera, both in like style and by name brand and everything else, because that is important to them. Uh, us guys who, you know, are working Joe's and are just trying to get the shot uh, on time and under budget, I, I feel like we don't care. We just need it to work. Uh, but I do know of some people, and I think that's because those people are out there that companies can make money, uh, even if really their, their market share is very small. I, yeah, I don't envision Samsung as the brand you would carry around <laughs> to show off like, look at how awesome I am. I mean, that's more like the Fuji range of cameras or uh, uh, some of the other like rangefinder looking things. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. No, All right. Street, the street photographers who uh, who brag about um, having cameras with less features. Yeah. It's like uh, going to a bike with no gear ratios. Like, sweet. <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, now I have to put my feet on the ground to break. Good job, guys. Good job. <laughs> um, moving on down the line to something that's way more affordable. Uh, I've talked about lens pouches in the past. And if you buy one from, uh, you know, you get one with your lens. Here's an example. Olympus and Canon are both guilty of this. They put these like kind of hard, heavy leather packs on the bottom of their lens uh, cases. And they're they're okay. I mean, they're not amazing, but they're not horrible. But for $7... You can buy something like this. And I know this is a little weird. At first you see it, it's purple, it's a little strange. But look at this. Fuzzy on the inside. This is water resistant. It's got a drawstring to cover things up, a hook if you want to hang it off your bag or whatever. It's very durable and it's a very good way to store your lens. You can get these for super cheap, 7 or $8, depending on the size that you're going for. And they're much nicer and more flexible than the ones that come with your native glass. Uh, do you use lens pouches at all, Devin, or is that just some weird thing that I've kind of gotten into? No, absolutely not. I've never used a lens back. Um, no, I'll use them for long-term storage. I'll use them for when I'm selling a lens to somebody else. Uh, it helps with packaging. Or even if I'm doing a transaction in person with another photographer and I'm letting them borrow my lens or something like that, I like to throw it in a pouch. That way, you know, it, it adds a little bit of protection, adds some cushion. They don't have to worry so much about it. Um, I don't have to worry so much about it. So I've got a couple around, but it's one of those things too that um, they're usually hard to come by and decent ones, you know, you can buy something out of eBay and usually that's a toss up on whether it's any good. But these look absolutely excellent. They look soft. They look like they have just that little bit of cushion you're looking for. And it's one of those that I could see myself going on a plane, throwing a lens in one of these bags along with being in my camera bag. Uh, but most of the time I'm so grab and go that a bag would just get in the way of everything else. There, there was one time I used it where instead of bringing my camera backpack, since I don't have a smaller bag for my camera, uh, I just have a satchel, and then in that case, these little bags help me to put my lenses in my satchel without them bouncing around with my chargers and everything else that I have in there. So it kind of helped help me turn a, a non-camera bag into something that would accept, you know, or protect my camera gear. So, so if you look behind me, you'll see a bunch of camera bags all <laughs> over the place. A cornucopia and, yeah, of bags. I really like uh, Tamarack bags, so I have quite a few of those. Uh, they're the nice heavy-duty types. But the thing about those are that they were originally designed and sort of uh, conceptualized around large full-frame camera bodies and full-frame lenses. And that's fine, but it doesn't give you enough compartments to put a bunch of small micro four-thirds lenses in there and be efficient. You're using all the bottom space, but none of the up and down space. So mm -hmm. what I end up doing a lot of times is if I want to throw all my micro four thirds glass into a single bag, which is fairly easy because the glass is so small, I actually bag them in little pouches like this. 
and then I can throw two or three of them on top of each other. So you can stick like the 4518, the uh, 1718, and the 5114. Actually, 2514, I got that wrong. It's 45, the 25, I'm giving them full frame numbers. That's not correct. Uh, 17, <laughs> 25, and 45 millimeter lenses on top of each other in a single section where you would put a normal size lens. And then they're not banging around and beating up against each other, which uh, I did break a lens cap a couple times doing that. So uh, that was enough what? to make me, yeah, well. <laughs> I, no, okay. that's way better than what I do. I just stack them on top of each other without any protection. Without any really? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm like, oh, it's got a lens cap. It's got a you know cap on both ends. I'll just do this. Um, in most cases, I haven't been too rugged with my gear. But yeah, most of the time, because I have a deep bag like that too, I stack them on top of each other and hope for the best, which is not what you should do. It's um, it's not a habit you should get into, but a lot of times, like if I'm running from shoot to shoot and I'm moving fast, I grab my bag by the shoulder and then like toss it into the back of a car or a truck and then roll to the next location <laughs> and toss it back out, grab my stuff and start going. And a couple of those times I was thinking, oh yeah, I can just throw them. I did the same thing. I stacked my micro four thirds lenses on top of each other and I cracked uh, one um, lens cap. I busted off a filter and I seriously dinged like a $700 lens. And after that, I was like, you know what? I need to, I need to reevaluate how I'm storing these. <laughs> how when I'm, I'm transporting around. my gear. Well, because with a, a full frame lens, you know, like the 51 too, it fits in a mm -hmm. single section by itself. So basically your bag provides all the padding it needs and there's nothing right. above it. So there's nothing to really smack it. So if you're a little rough with your bag, you toss it or whatever, it's, it's not that big of a deal, but with M43 glass, it's so small and you stack it on top of each other. They're just sitting rattling right. around, beating the crap out of each other. Plus if I also travel with a satchel on occasion as well, or a mail bag or a man purse, whatever you want to call it, you can call it a man <laughs> purse if you want. That's fine. But uh, that one only has two lens compartments. So it's the same story. You put your camera body in the middle and then, lenses on the outsides well if you want more than one prime with you you're going to want to have some kind of padding to protect them and that bag mm -hmm. doesn't have a ton of padding to begin with because it's kind of like one of those uh classic you know uh, vinyl slash uh right uh, whatever you know what i mean like the little flip over there's not a lot of padding to it messenger mm -hmm. bag man yeah. purse a man purse absolutely speaking of micro four thirds lenses what do you, you got, just man? picked up a new micro four thirds lens Oh, yes, this is sexy. Devin, look at him doing the transitions here. I'm all over the place today. Um, So what I got here, and this is actually really sexy slash I might have spent too much money on it. I don't know yet. Uh, <laughs> this is the Olympus uh, 7-14 millimeter F2.8. And if you compare this guy right here for video viewers, uh, audio guys, you know, go watch the video. Uh, there's the uh, Panasonic 7-14 F4. And here's the Olympus 7-14 F2.8. You can see there's a significant size difference here. It, uh, it's substantially bigger, but that's to be expected because it's so much faster. You're talking about going from F4 to F2.8. Yeah, the only problem is you think you're getting F2.8, but with Micro Four Thirds, you're getting more like five six for your depth of field so the mm -hmm. issue is like it, it's more light getting into the camera but you're not really going to ever get much in the way of shallow depth of field out of even f2.8 at this wide of an angle well, yeah at that wide of an angle but still i i, I think it's absolutely worth the price because you're like ah, eh, is it first off i don't think the size is that much bigger because no. dj keeps forgetting about how big you know a canon <laughs> lens would be uh, at uh, 7 to 14 at 2.8. Um, and I think he's got one. But 
Uh, it's one of those where I say it's absolutely worth the price because especially with something like a GH3, GH4, I'm always looking for more light. Um, and even though you may not get shallow depth of field, especially with something that wide, I'm like, well, I would like to get more light when I'm that wide. I'd like to keep my ISO down and not have, um, have more options when it comes to lighting, uh, in different situations. So now here in my right hand is the uh, 16 to 35 millimeter full frame. And here is the... Uh, Olympus 7 to 14 millimeter, which is a roughly 28 to 14 millimeter equivalent. And you can see mm -hmm. the size difference between these two. Uh, the Olympus is significantly smaller. It's also better built than even my L glass here. Olympus does an amazing job uh, looking at this focus ring. It's nice. You can hear it like it's got a lot of travel, good click. Everyone always compliments Olympus on their build quality when it comes to their lenses. That's that's what I hear at the start of every review of an Olympus lens is like the build quality is outstanding. So that's that's always that's a great thing to hear that um, you, you can always trust Olympus to make it out of full metal. Is it is it heavier than the Canon? I uh, yes, I would <laughs> say it's equal or heavier than the sixteen to thirty five. And, so... and your Canon is the size of a coffee mug. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, they actually sell coffee mugs. Like this. Um, it's, you know, I really like it. I've been shooting with it for the last couple of days. Really good. Even indoor shooting at F28 that provides you enough light that if you crank it up to 1600, you're doing pretty darn good with regular lighting. Uh, it feels really nice. It is a little bit front heavy because with the GH4, now it kind of wants to mm. lean forward a bit. It's way heavier than the camera. Yeah. But I mean, it's a really nice lens. The other thing, and a couple of people are asking about this, what do you do about filters on here? Well, I know I rail against matte boxes, but this is one of those cases where you probably want one because if you look at how bulbous this front element is right here, yeah. it, it is huge. Uh, and there's no threads on this whatsoever. So the only way you're going to get any kind of ND out of this is if you're dropping a 4x4 four four in front of it. So uh, just mm -hmm. something to be aware of. Uh, otherwise... Yeah, manual focus on this is is really nice. It's got tons of throw on it. Uh, the whole thing is built out of really solid metal. My Olympus uh, 12 to 40 millimeter has been hit with ocean water a few times and held up. I, I think they're generally a better seal than you get out of Panasonic glass. But on the other hand, look at this Panasonic lens. Super small, all plastic, super petite, and it's also half the price. You can get this for about... 600 bucks and it's also the same focal range but it is f4 and you are dealing with the same bulbous uh np mm -hmm. so you know if you're on a budget and you're going to be shooting mostly outdoor stuff or stuff that is well lit i would say save your money and go with the panasonic simply because of the size the you know the build quality is okay it's acceptable and it's half the price if you really need that f28 and you really want something that can be you know, beaten with a hammer and still stand up, then the Olympus uh, 7 to 14 is where it's at, you know? So I, I don't know, Devin, what do you think, man? You, you uh, like think so? like I said before, like I said before, or, you know, because also too, you're thinking of your GH4, which you can go up to ISO 1250 and you still have a really usable image, even more so if you do a little bit of noise removal. Uh, but I think about too, for one reason or another, I love to shoot with my black, mod, uh, black pocket cinema camera and that is not a low-light camera by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, yeah. ISO 800 is what you got. 
Um, so, you know, and even like going down in ISO is really just kind of denoising or whatever. The levels is not necessarily, eh, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those. And if I'm shooting raw, then it's like locked at 800. It's just that's what you deal with. So it's one of those where I go, yeah, get me 2.8 wide and fast. That's what I'm always searching for. And if you compare getting um, a, uh, you know, 7 to 14 or whatever Canon or, or some kind of Canon equivalent, Nikon equivalent, putting a speed booster on and then putting it on here to try to get wide and fast or like, you know, it's one of those where when you add up all that cost, it's way more than this Olympus is. And this Olympus is going to be a smaller, nicer package for that situation. So I don't think that there's really any competition to speak about because there's nothing this wide and this fast for Micro Four Thirds. And of the options to go this wide and this fast for Micro Four Thirds, everything is more expensive than this is. So, like, really the only two things to look at is a Panasonic, if you don't mind it being a little bit slower, or you have this. Otherwise, to get this wide and fast with adapters, you're going to spend a lot more money. Well, don't they have a, didn't Olympus with this announcement release that uh, 8mm F1.8, I want to say, or F2? It's, that's does that ring a bell at all because uh, i think that was the case you know uh, <laughs> no I, no you, you might be right but but it's not a 7 to 14 it's not something that gives you range and options that's true know. and your what's your crop factor on the pocket i, I can't even remember three, now is it like about three, three. It, oh it's jesus like, people argue 2.9 3.1 but it's pretty much three so a seven millimeter would be like 21 roughly exactly so, how you see how hard it is to get oh, wide <laughs> wow <laughs> That's not even that wide, really. Uh, you no, know. no. So this is a perfect pairing to put with your Blackmount uh, Pocket Cinema camera uh, because it is so hard to get wide on that camera. It's um, So it's one of those that seeing this makes me excited because the Panasonic option at F4, and then you combine that with the fact that the Pocket isn't a low-light camera, kind of limits your options on where you can use it. Uh, that's why I see most people using Primes. Uh, the show Mythbusters, they switched over from using GoPros to pocket cinema cameras because they want higher quality, um, understandably so. And they're basically just using that, uh, I think, 8mm Rokinon or something like that. Uh, two yeah, something. the fisheye or whatever, the 2.8. Right, because it's so hard to get that camera wide, and they're trying to replace a GoPro, which is normally very wide. So it's it's one of those that th i i think i'm i'm drooling over this lens right now so we need to move on to the next topic all right man uh actually this is one i'm going to combine here everybody knows if you haven't heard already that uh, olympus has released the em10 mark II, and that's a 699 dollars micro for their camera now devin put it put this in the show notes and i'm going to kind of roll in this all together because the gh3 has seen a price cut and it's now around 600 dollars uh, for pretty much, I don't know, I would say fairly competitive uh, offering to what you would get out of the Olympus uh, 10 Mark II. Now, how do you think those two compare? I know Olympus has the five-axis image stabilization, and there it was, I'll actually correct myself from the previous episode, I mentioned that I thought it, I wasn't sure if it had five axis or three axis. That's because I was reading from BNH and they hadn't updated the specs for it yet. It is in mm -hmm. fact five axis. I've got a link to the DP review notes uh, on this camera, but I also watched the DP review and I'm seeing the video from the Olympus uh, EM10 Mark II and it's not that great. I mean, it's okay. It, it's yeah, it's, it, it, it's one of those that e, as a B-list camera, sure. Um, I could I could see it being that way as your go-to being like, hey, I've got $700. I want to buy a camera to start shooting with uh, or even a camera that this is going to be my primary. I'm going to go on a shoot with this. It just doesn't seem right. Um, it, it doesn't seem like it's providing enough there. 
of course, you know, if they had 4K video for maybe $100 more, that would be killer because it would blow, you know, the GH4 in terms of pricing out of the water. But uh, just the fact that there's no video in it means very little for me. If you're a photographer, on the other hand, this could be great. Um, but in terms of the video, I don't know if it's like a bitrate problem. I don't know if they're doing that because since it's a lower priced model, it's supposed to reach more consumers. So uh, they bring down the bitrate so that more SD cards are compatible with it. I, I don't get exactly why. Uh, you know, their previous camera had some pretty solid performance in video. Uh, they weren't breaking any records, but it was definitely something I'd see myself using. And then so far, a lot of the tests, whether, you know, I they just none of them wowed me and made me go okay that's sharp i see how i could use that so it's one of those that i really feel like a gh3 would be a better option to purchase now how do you feel about the g7 then as a comparison because that one now that's 699 i think it even comes with a kit lens for that price it yeah. is capable of shooting 4k it's got a lot of the same image processing features that are available in both the uh, gx8 and the gh4 and it's priced mm -hmm. very competitively with this, so much so that I, I think it might even sort of throw the GH3 under the bus in terms of value <laughs> for price. Sure. No, no, you, you could. I think you're right on that on a lot of points. One thing that you aren't getting with the G7 or uh, any of the other Panasonic lines is that five axis image stabilization uh, that works with a wide, lens of, a wide range of lenses. So it's, it's one of those that... Uh, the image stabilization for me is not a big deal. It's something that's really cool and it's something that's fun to play with, but it's not something that I go, this is the one reason I'm going to buy this camera. Um, so I think the G7 is a way better option to purchase. Uh, as opposed though, in terms of a G7 versus a GH3, it's, uh, for me, that's, a that's hard for me <laughs> to figure out because I, I really, I like both. Um, I feel like, though, the GH3 still has a few more better features uh, than the G7 does. I, does the G7 have microphone input? Uh, I think it does, actually. Does it I'm, have a 3.5 jack? I don't know. I wasn't expecting to talk about it until I just was I. <laughs> the mind, and I was like, wait a minute, what? Yeah, yep. hold on a second. You throw me under the bus, I'll, I'll drag you with me. So, yeah. the, um, but I mean, also too, there's a lot of support gear for the GH3 form factor uh, because it's identical to the GH4 form factor. Uh, so that's something to think about too. If you're into cages and everything else, I know you love your cage that you've got on your GH4. Um, yeah, that Verivon so cage is excellent for the GH4. But one of the things I want to point out is even if it has image stabilization for the EM10 Mark II, uh, well, you know, mm -hmm. what good is image stabilization if your image is still sort of subpar, you know, the, the video quality on this, uh, there was a lot of more A in the test yeah. shots from DP review. Um, it wasn't very crisp. It looks sort of, it's not soft per what se, it, but just what, not What it looked good. like to me, what it looked like to me, and I could be completely wrong in this, um, but it, it just looked like uh, the Bayer pattern, the algorithm they use for pulling the sensor data down into an image looked like something we've seen from way back when uh, from DSLRs, which runs a simpler algorithm because it has less processing power uh, uh, to reconstruct the image better. So I think that even though this is supposed to have kind of the same chip and everything else, maybe the IO paths in it 
uh, don't like have as much bit rate or something like that. Not enough bandwidth just, on the bus to the processor. Yeah, it's one of those things where it just looks like to me like an older DSLR, which didn't exactly have the the chip speed in order to do a really nice recompiling of it. Uh, it almost reminded me of a Mark II, dare I say, uh, but. <laughs> Ooh. But it's one of it's one of those kind of situations where I go, uh, yeah, I could see this being acceptable because I've seen videos that are shot on cameras like this before, and it doesn't stop you from telling a good story. But I just went, if you're interested in video, I think there's a lot better options out there. Yeah, it's just it's really interesting with mar uh, the market going the way it is. I mean, I'm looking right now at the Samsung NX500 that we were talking about too, and that's with lens with the 16 to 50 millimeter zoom lens. It's 7.99, and that shoots 4K. It's a 28 mm -hmm. megapixel sensor. You know, it's APS-C size sensor, so a little bit more in terms. Yep, exactly. And then you have the uh, G7, and uh, that's great. So if they don't bring their A game to everything now. I got to back up on the image stabilization. That is going to be good for photographers. Absolutely. And Olympus has always been pretty strong in their uh, commitment to photography in general. So mm -hmm. maybe that's what they're trying to do is say, yeah, we threw in this video stuff to, you know, appease the masses, the unwatched <laughs> masses out there. But otherwise, this is a photography tool and our image stabilization is above par. It will give you a lot better uh, low light performance in terms of handheld shooting for, you know, fixed objects and what have you. Uh, maybe that's maybe that's what they're trying to sell to is is that particular market as I opposed think it, to it, it honestly just kind of looks like, oh, do you not need as many video features, uh, but you want an Olympus camera? Like you're just a photography guy who doesn't care too much about video. Here you can have an Olympus camera for way cheaper um, and still have kind of all the features that you had before, uh, just minus the video stuff. So I, th I think that that's exactly what's going on here is that um, they, they shortchanged a few pieces of the hardware in order to bring the price down so that... Uh, their photographers can kind of get access to all these new cool features they've made at a cheaper price point so that people can stay on the Olympus train or, you know, the camera brand that they like. Now, the other thing I want to complain about real quick before we move <laughs> on is just the the screen. Come on, guys. Give me a full articulating flip out screen. I yeah. Mean, I know that it, it looks it, you can look down at it from above, which is fine. That's something <laughs> I do. But you're already almost there. Why not just put it on a full hinge that swings around to the front or even like uh, Samsung does where they allow it to flip up completely. So it reverses the screen and it's above the camera. Now, those sorts of things are really handy, especially for filmmakers who want right. to do uh, you know, video where they talk into the camera or they want to use that sort of as a replacement for a monitor. Because honestly, now that I've kind of moved mostly to GH4, I, I hardly ever use my field monitors. The only time mm -hmm. I use my field monitor is if I'm getting out my 5D Mark III or my 6D. I, if I have the GH4, I just flip the screen around and I don't even worry about it. It's not that big a deal. It gives you so well, much and flexibility. The GH4 has such a great screen that you could pull focus on a three and a half, whatever it is, inch screen because it's so sharp. And well, so and you can punch in too. So you can you can totally go yeah. one to one, and then you don't even have to worry about it for pulling focus. So it's extremely nice for that. Uh, I love my DP6 uh, field monitor, and I've got a, a well. There's there's a line of them over here. I've got like five field <laughs> monitors, and I used to use them every single day, and I still use them on my Canon shoots but it's just not as important when I have a flip-out screen. And if you put flip-out screens on everything, I, you know, I, you'll be hard-pressed to, to find someone who really needs a field monitor. 
Plus, the GH4 has the great phone interface, so you can use your phone as sort of a remote field monitor, mm -hmm. and you don't even have to worry about that either. Whereas the 6D, not so much. The 5D Mark III, you can use the old uh, uh, USB port trick, but still not quite as good. As I never liked the USB device. trick. Yeah, the USB it's, trick was always too laggy for me. I didn't really like it. Yeah, whereas you get a little bit faster response with uh, the GH4 and it's built-in Wi-Fi. I still would like to see a, a better way of doing that, but uh, until then, you know, it is what it is. But mm -hmm. flip-out screens, come on, camera manufacturers, give me all the flip-out <laughs> screens. I want flip-out screens on everything. And and I a part of it, too, is I get it for weatherproofing and trying to make a hardier camera and stuff like that, but it still seems like one of those things that, uh, you know, you, you, once you don't have it, you really miss it. I feel like it kind of falls in line with things like having audio meters while you like watch your footage, which was something that early on in DSLR we didn't really have um, without hacking and other things like that. Or like having zebras, you know, uh, that's something that you don't miss until you don't have it anymore. And then you're like, man, it's really nice to like be able to just snap the exposure to where I need it when I'm moving in between different lighting situations and stuff like that. So some some of these things are more important than others. Flip out screen, though, is probably at the top of the list for like moving quickly and getting the shot on time. Now, speaking of lighting, uh, Devin posted this in the uh, show notes here, so I'm going to throw him a bone for that one. Uh, this is the Westcott Flex Lights. Uh, if you haven't seen these yet, guys, they're pretty sexy. They're an LED strip that's sort of using um, an electronic fabric, you know, a conductive fabric, in order to stitch these beautiful LEDs into what is basically a blanket of LEDs that can be wrapped around mm -hmm whatever you want they're fairly spendy we're talking a price tag in 599 dollars on up for the larger sizes Devin, what do you think about these guys uh you know what it's one of those that i'm fascinated by because when i see it in action which i've never actually seen anyone buy or use these besides the advertising videos yeah and um, there's such creative lighting uses too they're <laughs> like oh look at this we wanted this keyboard to glow and then we put this light over and draped it over a you know a couch cover cover or something you're like what right. It, it's one of those that I'd love to grab a few for day-to-day -day use, uh, but the pricing is very high. Um, we're, we're talking about super high. Uh, I don't know why I don't have a link because I thought I included a link for myself, but I don't. Um, it's uh, it's about a thousand for. Uh, it goes between like eight hundred, a thousand. There's different kits you can buy. Um, or 600, I think is the cheapest one they got. I think that's like a five yeah, inch. 599 is their most affordable unit. And then as you move up from there, it can get all the way up to $1,200 or better. And, and it's, it's one of those kind of things where, uh, first off, it's such a simple thing. Uh, a lot of these LEDs, especially if you space them this far out, run cool enough, uh, that, um, you don't need to worry about heat sinks or, you know, anything fancy about the cooling. If you apply a little epoxy here or there, you can get some pretty weatherproof lights out of it. Uh, and they're generally just by design. They're just light, and they seem simple because, like you said, it's stitching LEDs onto fabrics. And I've looked at um, doing things like this, making my own LED lights and stuff like that. Um, and while everyone thinks it looks like it could be incredibly cheap, uh, there are a few... Uh, knockoffs of this light already because it is a pretty simple thing to emulate. Uh, but even those people are selling them for $300 or so, $200 because uh, LEDs that have high CRI are not that cheap. Uh, I did find one company uh, that was English that was selling lights like this that I was talking about, uh, trying to figure out, you know, if, if I was to construct this on my own, you know, getting some high CRI LEDs. And you're talking about a normal strip that costs $10 on eBay 
costs probably about $60 if you wanted a, a CRI of like 92 or over $100 if you wanted a CRI of 97. So, and CRI is the color rendering index. It's kind of, I guess you could think of it as a percentage of how accurate the light is. Uh, if you don't pay attention to that, guys, and you get LEDs, you can end up with some pretty harsh color casting. Some on... really ugly looking uh, color out of your LEDs. Yeah. So that's part of it, too, is that I do understand uh, while a lot of people say, oh, these are outrageously priced because they're looking at like, I could buy these same things for $10 on eBay. It's like, no, no, no. Take it from somebody who's like done some under cabinet lighting for my friends and stuff like that. You can buy the cheap stuff and it works if you don't care about how pretty your light looks. Uh, but if you really want high CRI, you'll spend a boatload of money to make sure that it's high CRI. And that's exactly what Westcott is advertising is that they've got really high CRI. Um, not that the clones that I'm sure are going to come out over the years uh, won't also be somewhat reasonable in their uh, CRI index. But uh, it, it's one of those that I'm like, I want to see more than just them use it because it looks fascinating. It looks like something that would go great in my bag. It looks like I would love to have several of these. Uh, pull them out, stick them to whatever, uh, you know, maybe some mini Manfrotto light stands to go with them to hold them up when I need and stuff like that. But it, it looks like a really great workflow for shooting fast and shooting on the fly. I'm just kind of confused because they've been out since January uh, to most of the market and I haven't seen anyone pick them up, use them or do several reviews on them or anything like that. It's been pretty scarce. So uh, it, it's one of those that I'm looking at maybe making my own because they are pretty pricey um, and just I think it'd be a fun project to do. Uh, but I kind of wanted to get your idea on it, DJ. Do you think something like this that's like rollable, bendable, do you think it would last very long? Uh, and do you see this as something that you'd throw in your bag all the time, just maybe as an extra light to have on the side, maybe a tiny one? Or would you buy full panel ones and use this to light everything? I don't know. Honestly, my current experiences is, is that I, I, I tend to bring LED lights with me, but I don't tend to use them nearly as much as I thought I would. Um, mm -hmm. I have, I have a kit of four torch, uh, led bolts, which are, uh, they're about 200 watt equivalent. And I do use them for specialty stuff. They're really nice lights, but I, I have my regular big lighting rigs, my, um, my brain is not working today. <laughs> you know, the with the glass that you, Kinos. yeah, I guess some Kinos. I've got the, um, uh, the, you know, what's the lens that you move back and forth that changes the focus of your glass. Uh, it's in no, a Fresnel. Thank you. Fresnel. Fresnel. Yeah. Whatever. Uh, pronounce it however you want. Um, uh, <laughs> and chastise if you pronounce it wrong, but yes. yeah, I have, I have those sets and I, I end up using those almost all the time. Like it, unless and there are times where you're in a crowded area and you have to light something and it's extremely warm already and you don't want to bring that extra bit of heat to the situation. Mm -hmm. Then I go to my LEDs. Or if I need to do specialized stuff, like um, a couple of months ago I needed to shoot the scene where the character was walking in and out of uh, street lights, mm -hmm. but the street that we were shooting on didn't actually have any street lights. And right. so in order to do that, I set up these rather tall uh, light stands and then put an arm out on them and hung torch LED bolts every uh, eight or so feet so that the character would walk into the light, walk out of the light into the shadow, walk back into the light again and stuff mm -hmm. like that. They're great. But uh, for regular stuff, I don't know. I The, the throw isn't far enough. The mm -hmm. coverage is sort of in the middle, but it falls off really strongly on the sides. And I've, I've found this to be the case with most of the LED lights I've tried. And I know I got in trouble 
last year at NAB because I was talking to a vendor and I'm like, what are you guys <laughs> going to get up to, to, to snuff with regular lighting? And they're like, well, you don't understand. You're just using crappy lights. If you use our $3,000 lights, then you wouldn't right. have that problem. Well, that's fine. Uh, I could use your $3,000 lights, but when I can go buy some Kinos for like $600 a piece, you know, why am I going to spend $3,000 on this alternative method? Well, yes, I understand. I, it uses less power if I'm shooting outside and I have to bring a gen mm -hmm. kit with me. I don't have to bring a, as big of a generator. And those are all pluses, but they're things that aren't important enough for me to make the jump over to LED for the sure. price that they are right now. And uh, on the reverse side, like a bad rant or no, no, what? No. No, and you bring up excellent points, and I think it comes down to is that the right tool for the right job. Because uh, meanwhile, what I see is that uh, having some kind of flexible lights like this, because uh, I do use LEDs almost exclusively. Uh, I mean, while I do have a few REs and stuff like that that are tiny HMI, they're hot and everything else, a lot of the shooting I'm doing, uh, if it's documentary, if it's news style, if it's interview style, um, LEDs are fine because pretty much the only way you light that that anyone's going to like is a, a big soft box. And LEDs basically give you that look. They don't give you an option of having another look. I mean, you can kind of dim them and you can move them like any other light and create some try to, you know, shadows and stuff, but you won't have a focus light and you won't have a fine light. And uh, but there are situations where I go, oh, if I'm in an office, the worst thing possible is overhead lighting in an office. But with these, I, I think to myself, I'm like, oh, yeah, I could take a piece of gaffer's tape, throw it on a wall there, throw it on a wall there, crank them all the way up, and I fill the room with light that isn't overhead light. It's light from the side, so it's more flattering in the video. So I guess it depends, you know, but see, right, with that, the right job. You could totally go get a CFL and, you know, stick it uh, behind a diffuser and you're basically going to accomplish the exact same thing, like yeah. light everything. And you uh -huh. can go get CFLs for... Uh, way nothing. cheaper. Yeah, nothing like two dollars <laughs> a piece, and, and they even sell you know properly color rated um, lights now. Even at Walmart, you can go to Walmart yeah. and get a CFL that Oddly has enough. you know a, a five thousand rating, or you can get one that has a thirty two hundred rating, and it's not that hard. It's it's they're very easy. They, they write it down in the box, and they're and fairly they, decent. They look good too. Even the ones from Walmart, which I want to comment on. People are trying to find uh you know lights with a higher CRI on the cheap. Um, I, I guess it's because a lot of people switching to those compact fluorescent bulbs realize that like while it's energy efficient, most of the time the light off of that is green. It's not containing like all the colors they're looking for. Yeah. And it, it seems to upset people. Oddly enough, like um, like people like my mother, uh, you know, they would we I threw in a few CFLs and she hated the way it looked. Um, and so therefore after a few years, went and got some ones that had a higher CRI and then now she doesn't know the difference. So I guess people are now more aware and Walmart sells these bulbs and Home Depot sells these bulbs with ratings on them because, uh, people seem to be aware that, uh, you know, really cheap bulbs, uh, are not flattering even to live in, even just to like, you know, uh, cook and stuff like that. They prefer having the incandescent look that 3,200, uh, you know, broad spectrum that you don't really get from cheaper compact fluorescence and everything else. Well, it used to be you had to go on to like Amazon or to B&H and buy like Alzo lights that yeah. were specially made for photography or for video uh, for continuous lighting. And and those are fine, but you spent like 10 times as much as you would on a regular CFL. Now they're so <laughs> readily available. And that's the problem. So if I'm on a light, I can go get, uh, I can send someone to, you know, Walgreens or whatever and pick yeah. up, like, go get me like six CFLs and, uh, you know, a couple of those like crappy cans from, 
you know, an auto parts store and we'll just hang those around here and get it sorted out. Quick, <laughs> quick tip to the aquatic store. Um, or if you're or trying to find store if you live in Washington or <laughs> Portland. Um, or if you're searching online for uh, CFLs that you want high color rendering index, but you feel like um, for whatever reason, adding film or photo to your search terms is causing an increase in price that's unjust. Uh, for a good while, uh, I was getting cheaper bulbs from, you know, labeled for aquatic use because those have to have a high CRI because of, you know, the fish or whatever and uh, making sure, you know, all your aquatic life is happy. So those I found surprisingly were reasonable in price, uh, had a high CRI. I think now just about everything has a high CRI. But also, too, I found that with LEDs, if I look for LED strips that are made for aquatic use, they tend to have that higher CRI rating without having a huge jack up in price because they have the word film on them. So something to consider. Uh, now, the other one, uh, surprisingly, and I just ran into this the other day, Ikea um, has a whole bunch of these like strip light LEDs that are available. And mm -hmm. they're not really, they're not in the 90s, but I, I think their CRI ratings like 84, 85. So mm -hmm. that's good enough to like not be too bad. That's, and a lot of them are for a lot. Yeah. And a lot of them are, have a color wheel on it. So they're tri LEDs. So they have, you know, three channels of color that you can mix and match. So if mm -hmm. you wanted to do some kind of I don't know, artistic lighting where you wanted to have purple underneath of something and like blues over there, greens. Sure. I could see somebody building up a rather cool set with something like that fairly easily. And they're, they're 15 to 20 bucks a piece. I mean, you can do a lot and they're set up to be glued, nailed to, or uh, basically taped yeah. onto surfaces. So, and, and for, and, and in terms of CRI for me personally, I find that anything over 80, uh, I can kind of fix in post. Uh, anything under 80 is usually too much of a mess for me to fix and pose. It's usually kind of too skewed and it's a real pain in the butt. And so I, I rarely ever shoot with anything that is kind of under 80. Uh, but 80 is the range where I could kind of fix stuff in post. When I get up to 90, I can't really tell the difference. I know there's other professionals out there who can tell the minute differences, but kind of once it's past 90 for me, it looks really good. And there's usually nothing I have to do in post to correct for a bad bulb. It just looks good. So uh, that's my own personal take on CRI. I don't know about you, DJ. You probably, all your gear is probably like 97 plus D CRI or something. Yeah. Other than my torch LED bolts, man, I'm not big on the LED stuff. I've tested out a mm -hmm. bunch and it, I use these, I carry them with me all the time. Like everywhere I go, I have them and I have the big batteries for them and stuff, but I don't use them nearly as much as I thought I would. I was excited about LEDs until I realized that, I could go get a CFL and just do the exact same thing, sure. especially for interviews and stuff. And anymore well, now and when I do interviews, I find myself like, okay, let's go find a big window and let's, you know, open it up and set the, set your interviewee, you know, mm -hmm. five feet away, use natural light. And then I don't have to worry about lighting correctly or anything. I mean, I'm still worrying about lighting, but it, it does it for you. It takes the guessing game completely out of it when you have yeah. like, big window that you can set someone five or six feet away and then shoot there you're already pretty much set and you don't have to worry about the harsh lighting inside the office or anything. and for a good point flags and reflectors are way cheaper and way easier to transport than any kind of lighting system oh so, yeah absolutely and those so, roll up little circle ones man yeah. i love those i've got a couple got of those like in my kit. so yeah. nice to have around especially like okay, think about this setup for a second. Normally, you'd bring in uh, three lights to do an interview in a room, uh, at least three lights, maybe four if you want something from behind to sort of give them the halo or whatever. Uh, 
so that's four lights that stands it's plugins it's power strips it's whatever else you need to support that including the boxes and stuff like that or i can go in with a couple of reflectors and a white screen and then i can set my guy like five feet away from uh you know sunlight coming in from a window and mm -hmm. and hook those up with you know either a grip arm or whatever set them up against a chair for god's sakes and then shoot it really quick and be done mm -hmm. and now I can pack back up into something that's like this big, you know, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> it is. It is. And if, if you're like busy looking for good prices on LEDs or battery powered lights and you don't have a reflector yet, help yourself out. They're like 15 or 20 bucks. Go get some circular reflectors. You can get kind of with gold on them. You can get ones that, you know, uh, also double as a flag. Uh, you can get big ones you can use as a scrim. If you're outdoor with harsh sunlight, you can just put it between the sun and them, and suddenly you've got this nice, soft, pleasant uh, shade that you get to shoot in. So it, there's so many uses for it, and I think that that's the first place to start with lighting is the free lighting you get from the sun because most of the time you're shooting during the daytime anyways. Uh, but another good point, too, with you and your CFLs uh, or just fluorescence in general, a, a big complaint usually is transportation. That's why some people want LEDs and compact lights, but you can get the fluorescent tubes anywhere, and now that you can get them that are pretty much you know, accurate enough for photos, you don't have to transport the tubes. You don't have to worry about breaking them in the back of your car or anything like that. You can just pack up the fixture, which the fixture is way hardier than the bulbs will ever be. Pack up the fixture, uh, you know, take it with you, transport it wherever, ship it wherever you need it to ship, and then just go buy bulbs the day, you know, the day of the shoot. So that's always an option too. Well, and the nice thing too, uh, I've been, and I, sh I probably, I don't need to buy more kit, but um, <laughs> because a lot of people that are in areas where, you know, the electrical use actually does matter and the amount of power they have is limited, uh, they're selling off their Kino flows for cheap. I mean, I I've picked mm -hmm. a few up used for two or 300 bucks where these used to be uh, grand or better when I was buying them to begin with. So, you know, just, just something to keep an eye on, on your local Craigslist if, uh, if you know a light company goes under or what have you maybe you can swing in and get a bunch of their stuff or if theaters are upgrading their their kits uh, i know a, a lot of their spotlights and stuff now there's they're starting to develop leds that are actually usable and because of the power range they're using maybe 80 or 200 watts where they were using somewhere in the range of like a thousand or two thousand watts for their spotlights previously uh mm -hmm. that power savings does make sense in a theater setting but it doesn't necessarily make sense for someone on a budget like myself i don't have right. three grand to spend on a spotlight that's got an led in it that's just i don't i mean i, I I could afford it, but I don't want to afford it because that <laughs> takes out some other thing. Like I wouldn't have this wonderful Olympus lens in front of me if I was spending money on LED lights. So, uh, and it, obviously everybody has their own take on it. Guys, uh, feel free to comment on your lighting techniques and what you like to use and the lights you prefer. Uh, there is no right answer to any of this just because I'm not a huge advocate for LED lights and Devin is a huge advocate for LED lights. It doesn't mean that either one of us is on the wrong, wrong side of the fence. It's just what situation are you in? What kind of lighting do you need? And what are you trying to accomplish? If you're running around with uh, very little in the way of equipment and you just want to get in there and get out with a little bit of light, you know, LEDs aren't that, that bad of an option uh, or the Sony a7s. Mm -hmm. I, right? I'll light it with my cell phone. Don't even worry about it. You know? Don't even need lights. It creates ah. its own light. <laughs> All right. On that note, I think we've hit everything on the show note. Devin, you got anything else you want to cover uh, before we get out of here, man? Well, I think I think we had a quick question. Um, oh, did we? 
Yeah, yeah, we did. I don't even know when it happened, but we have a quick question. He was just saying, uh, hey, in your uh, Michael Turner was asking, hey, guys, in your last episode with Mitch, you talked a little bit about rigs for DSLRs. Have you seen the DP3000, uh, which is one of those cheaper uh, flyaway uh, map boxes? Um, how does this compare to a more expensive unit um, like the Lamb Parte, however you say that? I've seen those on eBay. Uh, what do you use? Does anything exist that's less than 500 bucks? Uh, depends on what your rigging is. Depends on what you're looking for. There are things that you can put rigging for your shoulder. And I feel like I should take this question a little bit more than uh, him over there because I, <laughs> I rig and he doesn't. So, you know, uh, but um, it's all cheap. It's all plastic. Uh, it's one of those things that I did that for a while until I could afford better stuff. Um, and it's also one of those, though, that if you're not shooting every other day, you don't need the expensive gear that you can run over with a truck and it'll last you for a lifetime. Uh, if you're shooting once a month, kind of like as a hobby or doing this or doing that, uh, you can use the cheap plastic stuff and it'll probably last you a few years. And to me, in terms of the cost versus... Uh, you know, a hundred dollar, you know, map box versus a thousand dollar map box. Uh, if it lasts you a few years, I think that's money well spent. Um, to each their own. I mean, there's tons of plastic parts, and I still use plastic parts in my rigging. Um, you know, I've, I, I've, I'm still playing around with the loggers lunchbox. Uh, you know, I'm not totally in love with it yet, but I'm kind of liking a lot of it as opposed to my traditional rig. Uh, the biggest thing for me is counterweights. Uh, DJ over there, he's got, um, some rigging too. I think also who's, uh, what's their name? Hondo garage or something like that. Yeah, Hondo garage makes some good, um, mid price stuff that their rigs, yeah. I think they're yeah. mostly metal though. They're not, uh, much. No, no, they, they do. That, that's why I recommending them. Cause they are cheap and you don't get maybe all the features or all the components you normally get from going and buying stuff on eBay from India, but you do get a lot of stuff. Um, I'm just saying that because I've, I've bought stuff from India off of eBay. I'm one of those guys. So I'm just saying I know uh, from Film experience. City is one of the <laughs> big culprits. Uh, Photog, so the one thing that's nice if you do have to go with the map box is that whole swing out system in general, for a long time, that wasn't available. You really did have to like move your map yeah. box around. And now that it's kind of found its way into the low end, lower priced market, I mean, there are a ton of, of nice swing away. Well, not nice. Uh, uh, acceptable swing away map boxes for like a hundred bucks where that used to not even be a thing. And, and that's so. exactly what he was pointing out is a $120 swing away map box. Uh, that's got some side rails on it, uh, rail mount on the bottom. And it looks like it's got some donuts and it's got two filter slots, two four by fours. Yeah. It looks like so, two by four by fours on there. So, um, and that's not a bad way to go. I don't think you're going to find anything cheaper than that because that looks completely plastic. I think that's as cheap as you're going to get if you want the swing away thing and everything else. Here's the thing too. Um, I, I don't think the swing away is worth it. If you can save 20 or 30 bucks, it, it depends on your workflow. Obviously, I don't know how you shoot videos or how you do your business, but, um, I don't switch lenses often enough in a situation where I'm using a matte box. It's usually I set up a rig and then I go use the rig for a while and I may come back to base and switch components out. Uh, but I'm usually not switching on the fly. Um, and especially if you're one person shooting a short film or shooting a web series or something like that, uh, the swing away map box, I don't think saves too much time because I'll kind of just twist my map box loose, push it away, swap it, and then pull it back in. The swing away part isn't saving me a whole lot. It, it's something that was really big with your big film cameras and everything else that were hard to maneuver and stuff like that. With these smaller cameras, it just doesn't seem to be that necessary because the whole rig is pretty light at the end of the day. 
Uh, my big recommendation is to find cheap counterweights. They're out there. Uh, you can buy them off eBay. You'll pay money for shipping. Just understand that when you see the prices. You'll pay, <laughs> you'll pay 30 or 40 bucks to ship a few pounds. Uh, but um, for me, counterweights were huge. Uh, getting it on your shoulder gives you that extra, extra point of contact, which helps you to stabilize it. If you don't have amazing, you know, wizard hands like a DJ over there. Um, but for me having also weight, it doesn't even need to be counterweight necessarily that like counterweights the camera. So I don't have to carry it, making my job easier. That's nice. But just adding some weight, if you aren't already adding like a big backup battery or something like that, adding some weight to make it heavier, it's going to reduce all the micro vibrations. It's going to help with jello. And overall, uh, it's going to give you, I guess, you know, that more cinema look of like a big heavy camera doing its thing, if that's the look you're going for. So uh, once again, it depends on what kind of look you want and what you're going for. I really like rigging. Um, you know, I'm not crazy about it. I don't have a bunch of stuff from wooden camera. I'm not a spokesperson for any rigging company, uh, but I'm super about it because I've seen how it helps me with a lot of the workflow I have. DJ, he probably used to do rigging for quite a while and he's minimized down to almost nothing because that's what works for him. I may eventually end up there where I get tired of all the rigging and I just end up with a tiny little camera. I'm being like, this is exactly how I want it. I don't want any extra crap on my shoulder. So teach their own. I got one more thing to add to that, actually. And this right here is something I still use on a regular basis. And for audio listeners, I'll describe it. It's basically just a plate, you know, adapter plate with a quick release and two rails. And it, it seems super basic. It seems like, well, what do you even need that for? Well, honestly, the reason I had a rig to begin with was to attach a bunch of crap to my camera. Like if I have a outbound uh, monitor that I want to use, if I have like an XLR audio adapter of some kind, stuff like that, I didn't end up using my rig nearly as much for walking around like De Devin does. So having a set of rails gives you ample amount of attachment points and you can buy for $15, $10, these uh, 15 millimeter rail quarter 20 adapter pieces that allow you to put mm -hmm. on friction arms. They allow you to mount uh, different mics, whatever you want, put cold shoes on it, wherever you want. And you can do that with a simple rail. So you can go pick up one of these base plates and a set of carbon fiber rails on eBay from pretty much any manufacturer. This one happens to be from CPM uh, camera rigs, but uh, uh, you know, whatever you want. And this setup is light, it's easy, and you can build from there. So maybe you have your, eye, your mind set on a really nice mat box down the road. Maybe instead of buying their entire kit for $250, you buy individual components that are a little bit nicer and you work your way up to that mat box or to that extra rig attachment or to that arm or whatever. And, uh, and specifically addressing the mat box, don't get a mat box. Uh, that's my <laughs> overall recommendation. I know that sounds crazy after that's all this. That's my recommendation uh, too. Um, the only reason I ever got a mat box was one, I got a really good deal, uh, from some company. I can't remember the name right now. I got a really good deal from them. So I got it for under a hundred bucks. Um, and I only got it because I knew it would impress clients, which sounds crappy. Uh, but that's also part of the, you know, the way that the market works and everything else is that my clients need to feel like I've got a big hulking camera. Now they're kind of more understanding of DSLRs. Uh, but back when I was starting to shoot with um, a GH2 and a GH3, putting on a map box suddenly made them think I had a video camera. As before, when I would show up, they'd be like, I thought you were a video person, not a photography person. So, uh, but in terms, the only time I've ever actually used my map box was I was shooting 
um, a short film on the Black Magic Pocket Cinema camera. We had a Metabone Speed Booster with a Rokinon, I forget the really wide one. I think maybe it was an eight millimeter or something like that. Um, and because uh, remember the 3X crop. So, uh, and uh, a speed booster on that. And then because it was so bulbous, I needed ND filters. So uh, I brought the map box out. I bought really, really cheap ND filters, which worked amazingly uh, for like 25 bucks, 30 bucks on Amazon. They are completely plastic, but they're clean enough that the HD footage looked good. Um, but everyone warns you they scratch super easily and they'll maybe only work for one shoot. For me, that price was good enough. They worked for that one shoot. Um, and I, I haven't scratched them yet, but I know too that they aren't exactly, uh, you know, something that I'll be able to rely on in the future. But that's the only time I ever use my map box and I've done tons of shooting. So, you know, to each their own, it depends on your situation. I needed filters. That's why I had a map box. Otherwise, while it does help with flaring and stuff like that, it, most of the time there's a better solution as in using a flag, repositioning the camera, um, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's just lens hoods too. Lens hoods work great. Um, so there's all kinds of different things. You, you can get rubberized lens hoods for a couple of bucks, way cheaper than a matte box. Uh, so that's that's always a better option to consider. Also, uh, to DJ's point, I will agree with him. One of the ways that rigging sucks is the more you rig, uh, the more you rig. That, that's, it's, it is a compounded problem. As soon as you put 15 millimeter rails on, you're going to have trouble spinning the focus wheel. So you're going to need a follow focus. Yeah. And, um, you know, as, as you start to add all these things and make your camera bigger, it becomes harder to reach in and start operating your camera. And then, you know, you'll start wanting an external EVF and you'll want, you know, this and that. So it's one of those things, the more you rig, the more it's like, you need to rig this too and rig this too in order to have better access to this. So, um, don't think too that rigging is always the answer. Me, I like the look of it and stabilized and I don't have steady hands like DJ does. So, you know, to each their own. I've actually worked with a couple of guys and uh, I'm not going to name their names, but you know who you are, uh, that, uh, <laughs> actually carry with them like a, a large pre-cut Pelican case that has their 5d Mark three already rigged up with rails, with mm -hmm. the follow focus, with a mat box, with all this other junk attached to it, except for, you know, the shoulder mount, they attach that separately, but it, it's already in a Pelican case and they pull it out, open it up, slide their lens in, set up their gearing for their follow focus. And then they're like, there you go. And they never untank their yeah. camera because they've gotten to that point where that's the only way they shoot. And I mean, part of me As says, opposed oh, to yeah, DJ, nice, but DJ shows up with a satchel, pulls a camera out and starts shooting. <laughs> that's part of the difference too. <laughs> yeah. I actually, I went on a shoot um, last week and I, I had basically a Tamarack 661 bag, which is like, it's, it's just a messenger bag. I had a 50 or a 25 millimeter F 14 for my GH four. I had a couple of Voigtlander lenses for shallow up the field. And then I had two zooms and I walked up, I pulled out my tripod, which was also in a nice little pack and, and one reflector, I shot the whole thing and they're like looking at me weird because I, you know, I didn't have any gear, I didn't have any assistant or anything. And they're like, well, is that it? I'm like, yeah, well, come over here real quick. Come over here. And I plugged my memory card into my laptop, sat down, had a cup of coffee and showed them what we shot. And they're like, wow, that's amazing. I'm like, yep, thanks. I'll have your bill for you next week, you know? And that's the thing is mm -hmm. like, people don't really, I mean, there are still people that care. Uh, generally, if I run into people that are uh, 45 and older, and I'm not trying to be discriminatory against age or anything like that. It's just that generally the people that are from a different 
era and expect more from a camera guy. But when I work mm -hmm. for younger companies, you know, especially startups and stuff, when I'm just doing, you know, an, a quick interview or I'm doing some publicity thing for them, or, you know, they need to put out like some like apology because they screwed up on something you don't have to go with that much stuff. And when you turn over your product, as long as it looks nice and also ideally your audio is very clean because if you have crappy audio, that's going to make your stuff look like crap. But no, you yeah. do those two things. You can do that in such a small package that you don't have to go with a lot of kit anymore. And many times, you know, my 25 millimeter 0 0.95 Voigtlander, you stick that on, you put a <laughs> lav mic on them, you hide it, you know, underneath their second shirt, you shoot them, you're done. That's it. You're completely done. You got beautiful footage. You got great audio and you turn it over, you know, maybe so the motion graphics are added and bam, you just made $600 for your day rate. You know, that's, that's great. Yep. That's, that's excellent. And and I didn't have to break my back carrying, you know, four cases of gear just to yep. look professional when <laughs> I know that for this particular shoot, the only tools I need are those few items. I, I don't know. No, I, make, make rant sure. I often get into, but people like they get obsessed with the gear and don't get me wrong. I'm a gearhead, man. I got lots of gear, but <laughs> I don't carry that gear around all the time. I sit down the day or two before the shoot and pick out the stuff I actually need. I buy stuff I probably don't need all the time, but I don't take it with me to the shoots unless I absolutely need it. And you, you run into some people when they buy all this kit, they, they have to take it with them to every shoot. And so now they're carrying three bags, four bags worth of kit. And you know, they've got 20 grand worth of stuff on them. And for what they, you know, get two lenses out and a camera body and that's it. Does that make sense? Yeah. I don't know. It doesn't to me. Yeah, absolutely. It, it comes down to, um, make sure too. a lot of people, especially somebody who's asking about, uh, buying a map box. Um, not specifically the guy who asked us about buying a map box. Cause I don't know his situation, but I do know that a large number of people who come asking me about, Hey, what kind of map box do you use or something like that? They're usually the kind of person who hasn't really shot anything yet. And they're just focused on everything that they've been told they need to get in order to have a perfect setup to then create perfect images. And so much of the time, that stuff is just icing on the cake. It's sweetening or it just makes your job a little easier or it just kind of makes you shoot better in a situation that may not be so forgiving. Um, but most of the time, it's like composition and lighting uh, trump everything. It trumps how good your sensor is, how good your lenses are, all that stuff. I mean, really... I have watched short films from an iPhone that's put me to tears because it's compelling storytelling. So uh, always consider that first that you guys really need to consider that uh, you need, you guys need to think that, Hey, you work on the craft first. And then when you run into problems and go, you know what, if I had this it would have made this a lot easier. Or if I had this, uh, I would have been able to get a, this shot that I wasn't able to get. Then you'll know how to spend your money. But if you haven't shot a whole lot yet, you haven't edited stuff together or anything like that, you don't know what you need yet. So wait until you actually run into problems when you're learning how to set stuff up. Because I, I would hope that you, you know, play around with the gear a bit before you uh, go to a client and then realize you can't do a client because you don't have the right gear. So yeah, never oversell yourself, guys. If you... <laughs> If you have not done something before, make sure you practice it before you go out and say <laughs> that you can do it because that can be a big issue. Um, maybe, you know what I think we ought to do at some point in the future, Devin, is like come up with the standard list of where to invest your money as far as camera gears go. Now, you know, sure. like make sure that you buy your lens, bodies, recommendations. Devin is going to start helping me with dslrfilmnoob.com writing a little bit, hopefully. So <laughs> if that's the case, um, maybe him and I can collaborate mm -hmm. on some more interesting stuff. Uh, 
that map box stuff we can go into a, a pretty big rabbit hole and we already did we, yeah we already did once again Kevin, we're over congratulations you, you want to talk about before we go over no, even we need to end it we're already 20 minutes over and there's there's people with pitchforks telling us to stop uh, mostly my wife just wanting me to go have dinner on that <laughs> note guys uh devin where can people find you uh i guess they can find me on twitter at mavermc uh that's gonna, all i got going right now check that you know I do check it. No, no, no. I check it all the time. I just, I need to post more on there. I've now that uh, things are slowing down and all I'm doing is sitting at home editing. I've got a lot more time to play on Twitter. So (laughs) (laughs) on that note, guys, you can find this podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, or anywhere else podcasts are distributed. Please be sure to click the like button and write a review on iTunes because that helps us out a lot. Thank Devin always for coming out and make sure you harass him on Twitter. You can find me on DSLR Film Noob on Twitter or on DSLRFilmNoob.com. I I cannot talk today. (laughs) On that note, guys, we'll see you next time on another exciting episode of DSLR Film Noob.